we're looking at the subject, saying doesn't make it so. Now, I apologize, I forgot to, to bring the bulletin insert today, but I'll give it to you outline by outline, and you can write it down on the back of your bulletin if you want. Firstly, saying doesn't make it so. And under that point one, obedience, obedience is the distinguishing medal of honor for true Christianity. Obedience. Look at verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if, if what? If we obey his commands. That's the big if. I think we're all familiar with military service medals. You may not know all of the details about them, but I think you're aware of them. These are conferred upon soldiers who in time of war and battle have distinguished themselves among their peers by some kind of heroic or outstanding service to their fellow soldiers. The person receiving the medal may have risked his or her own life to save another or to defend a vital geographical site against overwhelming odds that was very necessary for the victory over their enemies. For example, there's the Bronze Star. The Bronze Star, to be eligible for the Bronze Star, a military member must be receiving hostile fire, imminent be in imminent danger during the event for which the medal is to be awarded. It was established December 6, think about this, December 6, 1941. And it was established by Roosevelt in compliance with General George C. Marshall's request. He wanted something to distinguish uh, men in battle. There's the Purple Heart. You all know that that has to do with somehow receiving a wound or being hurt in some way when you're in a battle. Being wounded or killed in any action against an enemy of the United States or as a result of an act of any such enemy or opposing armed forces. Now the original Purple Heart was designed, designated, excuse me, as the badge of military merit. And it was designated such by George Washington, then the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, August 7th. 1782. The badge of military merit was only awarded, get this, to three, only to three Revolutionary War soldiers during that whole war. And it fell into disuse following the War of Independence. However, on January 7, 1931, Army Chief of Staff General Charles Summerall's successor, General Douglas MacArthur, confidentially, behind, you know, kind of quietly, reopened work on a new design involving the Washington Commission of Fine Arts. And this new design was issued on the bicentennial of George Washington's birth, and it was called the Purple Heart, and it is still awarded today. And then finally, there is what is called the Medal of Honor. The Medal of Honor is the highest military decoration awarded by the United States. It's often called, colloquially, it's referred to as the Congressional Medal of Honor. It's the same medal. And it's called the Congressional Medal of Honor because the president presents the award, quote, unquote, in the name of the Congress, end quote. 
It's bestowed on a member of the United States Armed Forces who distinguishes himself or herself, and I'll read it for you, conspicuously by gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his or her life above and beyond the call of duty while engaged in an action against an enemy of the United States, end quote. Now, what all of these medals have in common is an award or recognition for service rendered. Being in the military does not qualify a person for a medal. No, a person must be active in promoting the cause of liberty, the cause of freedom, even at the possibility of personal loss. So sacrificial service is awarded the medals, not just being in the Corps. One of the things they're doing in the schools these days, which I think is a travesty, is they're giving medals and, and statues and so forth to all the kids in, involved in some kind of a sports activity because they don't want anyone to feel bad. And they're taking away the whole idea of excellence and pushing uh, service excellence. Well, in similar fashion, in obedience to the commands of Christ is the only assured medal that we have to prove that we know Christ. It's the only medal. It is accompanied by the love of God, which is God's seal of approval. Look at verse 5. If anyone obeys his word... God's love is truly made complete in him. God loves obedient Christians because obedient Christians are the genuine article. All others are spurious. Now you can be spurious momentarily. I hope that would be the case with us, that if we're disobedient, that it doesn't last a whole lifetime. It may be surprising to know that Jesus has commands for his disciples to obey. He just recently elected a new commander-in-chief for the United States. But let me tell you, in God's army, there's a commander-in-chief too. And he has commands that we are to obey. Look at verse 10. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. Christ has commanded us, has he not... As his people, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. That's in John 13, verse 34 and 35. So here's one of the medals. It's the love medal. It's evidence to the watching world that we are disciples not of Mohammed, not of Charles Manson, not of the neo-Nazi party, all of which are hate mongers. But we are disciples of Christ, whose philosophy of life was and is to love people. To love them. And we're not talking about sentimental, wishy-washy type of definition of love. We're talking about if your enemy's hungry, you give him something to eat. And if he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. And that's loving them, giving them, ministering to them what they need. Another command of Christ is found in verse 10. Live in the light 
live in the light, which is another way to say that such a person walks in the truth and in no longer blinded by error and hatred and animosity and revenge towards others. Live in the light. Third command is implied in verse 14, which says, the word of God lives in you. The only way that is possible is if we do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. So to become people in whom the word of God lives, we have to be people who study the God of the word. And that you will find in the scriptures. Verse 15 of our text states a fourth command. Do not love the world or anything in the world. And if anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. So sometimes we get a positive command. Do this, do this, do this. And sometimes we get a negative. Don't do this. And don't do that. In either way, we listen. Well, we cannot at this time enumerate all of the commands of Christ. But John's point is that Jesus has commanded his people to live a certain way. And it is only as we do that that we may have the assurance that we truly know him. The summary is given in verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now look, just see how wonderful that is, that little phrase. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Without listing all of the commands of Christ, John nonetheless gives us this general pattern to follow. Walk or live as Jesus did. That's simple. You can remember that. It's a skeleton upon which you can flesh out the main parts of the body of doctrine as you learn more and more about the life and ministry of the Lord but it's simple to remember. Well, I, sh I wonder what Jesus would do. I'm to walk as Jesus would walk. I am to conduct my affairs like Christ would conduct his affairs. Secondly, assurance of salvation in Christ, assurance now, is more than words. Look at verse 4. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. One of the great defects in the altar call style conversions made popular in our country by men like Finney is the emphasis upon profession, that is confessing Christ. When I was growing up, it was the Billy Graham Crusades. Finney was before my time. Billy Graham, I was right there in that time. And in most Billy Graham Crusades, I have heard the evangelist say something to effect that the reason he calls on people to leave their seats in the auditorium and to come to the front of the platform is because every call to sinners Jesus made in his ministry demanded a public response. Well, I don't think that was so. The fishermen along the shore of Galilee were not in a public arena when Jesus said, Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Matthew 4 verse 9. Nor was Nathaniel 
as he sat under his fig tree in contemplation, John 1, verse 48. And we could go through many, many other situations. But beyond all this, the whole promotion of raising one's hand and then stepping into the aisle and then coming forward and then meeting in a back room for prayer, these, all of these physical actions have been assumed by many to be the defining moment of their coming to know Christ. They believe they know Christ as Savior because of these actions. They believe they are saved because the preacher said they were saved. They profess to know Christ on this superficial evidence and maybe even some statement by a backroom counselor as was said to me, well, you're saved now, so don't doubt God. I was a teenager, a little kid. There was no change in my life. None. I was still the bratty, disrespectful, foul mouth, hang with the world kind of guy that I was before I spouted all that religious mumble jumbo. But I made the claim of being a Christian because I was told that I was a Christian simply because I had made a profession, a verbal assent to faith. Yes, I believe. Uh huh. Well, John tells us here in this text sorry, <laughs> sorry, not enough. Saying doesn't make it so. Worse, worse, saying without corroborative, uh, corroborative objective proof makes you a liar. I didn't say it, John said it. John words it this way, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Verse 4. You say, boy, boy, <laughs> this John is tough on people. <laughs> Calling them liars and such just because, they, just because they are disobedient. Would you rather go to hell believing a lie? Or would you prefer to be challenged to truly repent even of a false profession, and go to be with God. What a warped view of love we have. The best way to love someone is to tell them the truth, even if the truth hurts. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, words it this way, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It is truth, brethren, which is liberating, not lies. This is why Solomon tells us wounds from a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses. An enemy multiplies kisses. Proverbs 27, verse 6. What is he saying? He's saying the friend is going to tell it like it is. The enemy is going to candy coat things so you will trust him. 
He wants you to feel good about him and his counsel because he plans to do you no good in the end. Let me tell you, that is not love. That's not love. The apostles, like John in our text, is not going to lie to us. He's going to tell us the truth. Consider the account of Simon Magnus in Acts chapter 8. When persecution under Saul broke out in Jerusalem, some of the Christian brethren began to scatter. You would too. Get out of town, head for the hills, just like Jesus warned. Well, Philip, the deacon, went to Samaria and he began a gospel outreach there. As vindication of his message, God enabled Philip to heal the sick and exercise demons from the from the being possessed, restore mobility to paralytics and crippled people. Philip was able to do all of those things. And there was a sorcerer in the crowd watching all of this, and he promoted himself as Simon the Great. That's what he called himself. And because of his occult powers, he had a large number of followers. Yet nothing he did compared to the mighty miracles performed by Philip. The crowd was swayed by Philip's preaching as he declared the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, verse 12. <clears throat> Many people were won over. And when they were won over, they were baptized and became charter members of the Samaritan church. Luke tells us Simon himself believed and was baptized. I'm reading scripture here. Simon himself believed and was baptized. He followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. Well, along about this time, the apostles in Jerusalem heard about the revival that was taking place in Samaria. And they sent Peter and John to check it out. Same John, by the way, who wrote the text that we're studying in 1 John. Upon arrival, Peter laid hands on the new converts, and lo and behold, the Spirit of God came upon them with great power. Well, Simon the Great saw this, and he offered Peter and John money, saying, here it is, give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 8, verse 19. It sounds a little bit odd that he would be saying that as a, as a believer, right? Well, it was odd to Peter, too, because here's what Peter said to him. May your money perish with you. Whoa. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right with God. Repent of this wickedness. Pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having a thought, having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Chapter 8 of Book of Acts, verses 20 through 23. Wow. Peter just cut, cut his legs out from underneath him. There's a lot here. 
telling on Simon the Great. Luke says he believed Philip's preaching and was baptized. But Peter said, "Uh uh-uh, your heart is not right before God. What does that tell you about baptism? It tells you that baptism does not save. And we're Baptists. We believe in baptism, but we don't believe it has any salvation abilities or purposes. We would have taken Simon to be a Christian like Philip on the basis of his testimony. But Peter called him to repent of his wickedness and ask the Lord to forgive him. Again, Simon was a bona fide member of the Samaritan church. He had jumped through what we may call the ecclesiastical hoops. He believed. He was baptized. He went about awestruck at the ministry of Philip. But Peter saw through him. Peter saw that he was captive to sin, is the way Peter words it. Because as in the days of his occult magic, he tried to buy Peter's magic the ability to lay hands on people and have them receive the Holy Spirit. He used his occult powers to obtain his following of miracle seekers. Now he wanted to do the same with what was perceived as Peter's powers. And he was willing to offer Peter money for such ability. No change of heart. See? Just the claim, I know Jesus. Peter didn't buy it. John in our text doesn't buy it. And neither should we. Because the man or woman who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Being true to God, being truthful, being righteous, being correct in behavior is one of the first marks of the Christian heart. The Spirit transforms us and conforms us to walk as Jesus did, verse 6. Now, not perfectly, because we're still sinners, but our life is turned around because the Spirit of God turns us around, begins to conform us to Jesus. Thirdly, God's love is confirmed to those who obey his son. God's love is confirmed. Probably one of the very first songs that we learn in Bible school as children is the song, Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. It's true that you will find the doctrine of the love of God in the Bible. In fact, at a later date, we are going to study 1 John 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So We're going to certainly look at that doctrine. In a child's song, it's fitting to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But in a more adult understanding, we would say this, verse 5, If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. 
We walk as Jesus did. That is to say, we live out his commands in our lives. We mimic his speech. We emulate his ways. We walk his path. We shun the temptations of the evil one. We're changed from the inside out. We become a new creation in Christ. This is evident by our behavior. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. John 14, verse 21. Or again in John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love, and if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. This is what causes the world to sit up and take notice. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13 verse 35. It is in profession which proves genuine character. It is obedience to Christ's commands, of which the foremost is a charge to abide in God's love through obedience to his son's wishes. Like father, like son. Now you might ask the question, why obedience to Christ is the mark of truly knowing God. Notice how I'm saying it. Obedience to Christ is the mark of truly knowing God. Why is that the case? Let me suggest some things for you. Number one, because Jesus is God's son and those who know God will honor his son. That's simple, isn't it? The Jewish brethren in our day are in the same predicament as the Jewish people of Jesus' day. The predicament is that they claim to worship God, Jehovah, the only true God that there is. And that claim means that they are assured in their own minds that they are in fact the people of God and are worshiping Jehovah, creator and Lord of all but they are worshiping no such person. And Jesus tells us why. Here it is. The Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. John 15 verse 23. Well, I ask it pointedly. Do the Jews honor Jesus the Son? Do the Muslims? Do the Jehovah's Witnesses? Do the Mormons? Does the man on the street? To the Pharisees, Jesus said, You do not know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. John 8, verse 19. And in verse 42, he says... If God were your father, implication is he, is, he really isn't. 
But if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. This is tough stuff, isn't it? You see, there is no honoring of Jesus in all of this by the very people who say that they know and love God. And Jesus is calling them on it. He's not letting it slide. Like father, like son. They cannot disown, disrespect, despise, even try to kill the son if they truly love and respect God the Father. It's like a bratty kid who says to an adult authority, maybe a babysitter or a teacher or something like that, I don't have to listen to you. You're not my dad. You're not my mom. No, but when dad or mom sent them to school or dropped them off at the babysitter, their authority as parents was transferred to that adult guardian. And if the child respects mom and dad, he will respect the one who represents them in their absence. It's more serious with Jesus, who is the heir apparent of God the Father, and who said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, John 14. That's pretty serious. What is the reality? John 15, verse 23. He who hates me hates my Father as well. That's it. That's the reality. The result, verse 22 of that text, who is the liar, says Jesus? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. Such a man is anti-Christ. That's obvious. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also, 1 John 2, verse 22 and 23 of our text. You know, that rules out a lot of people. It does. It rules out all the religions of the world except Christianity. You ever get the feeling you're in the minority? <laughs> We're in the minority, folks. It won't always be that way. So, firstly, obedience to Christ is evidence that you know and love and honor God the Father. Secondly, obedience is a mark of knowing God because obedience requires the Holy Spirit. You can't be obedient without the Holy Spirit. And only true believers are indwelled by the Spirit. There are two kinds of people in the world, those controlled by their own evil nature and those controlled by the Spirit of God. Paul puts it this way. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, 
are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, then he does not belong to Christ. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Romans 8, verse 5 and following. I want you to catch the significance here of the Spirit as the one who enables us to obey Christ and put to death the misdeeds of the body, as Paul says. He enables us to use our bodies, our faculties, to please God. But those whose motivation is the sinful nature are hostile to God, the way Paul words it, Romans 8, verse 6, therefore cannot please Him, verse 8, don't even want to please Him, verse 5, because their thinking is biased towards sin and its pleasures. As we study on the fruit of the Spirit, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And then he lists the sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, and so on and so on and so on. But then Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and so on. And he caps it with this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So obedience to Christ proves that you have His Spirit in your life. To will and to work for God's good pleasure. Philippians 2 verse 13. Very important. That's why obedience is important. Thirdly, obedience is a mark of knowing God because obedience issues from a heart of love and submission to Christ as Lord. I think that's the thrust of John's indictment in verse 4. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. There's something incongruous in a person who claims to know Christ and then proceeds to spurn, ignore, or disclaim his regulations for living the Christian life. To own Christ as Savior obviates that you submit to him as Lord. You do not get to say, but I don't want to be a part of a church Bible study. You don't get to say, well, I pre prefer to sleep in on Sunday morning. Or get to say Wednesday prayer meeting is a waste of time. But people do this all the time. Their religious allegiance is based on personal preferences and not upon the commands of Christ. As though Christ doesn't have any commands, but he has commands. Some of this is due to lack of humility and lack of love for Christ. And they will protest on the basis of some other excuse. Well, I'm too busy. My kids are bored. It's too far to drive. We're such a small group. The weather is bad. I'm tired after a long day of work. Now let me ask you a question. Is there any Christian here this morning who is immune from any of those things? 
We can all list excuses that seem to have merit. We think we know best how to raise our families in the Lord and how best to nourish our own souls because the commands of Christ seem too demanding or maybe appear to be the inventions of men. We hope they are the inventions of men so we will feel justified in not obeying them. If we worked as hard to actively obey the principles of Christ as we do to dismiss them and minimize them, we would see great changes in our families. Why? Because God blesses obedience and he judges slackers and complainers and incorrigibles. Sometimes the judgment is he just lets you reap what you sow. Which is not a, a positive chastening. It's him taking his hand of blessing off of you and letting you live out the consequences of your actions. And let me give one final aspect here that might be helpful. Everything the church organizes or does is not about you directly. Sometimes it is about others. Sometimes your part will be that of an encourager. Your part will be that of a facilitator. Your part will be to be a blessing to others by your presence, by your input, by your prayers, by your pleasant and eager participation. You want your children to love God and be eager to learn of him? then you demonstrate a love for God and an eagerness to learn of Him. You don't like the way your children are turning out? Then take a good look in the mirror to see what they see because guess what? They're mimicking you. Obedience to Christ is a mark of those that love Him. And then let me give you one negative here. Obedience to Christ is a mark of knowing God because a disobedience is the mark of the devil and his children. That's it. Let me read it for you. John 8. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Why is my lang language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and he's the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not. Believe me. What is John's indictment? His indictment is this. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, verse 4. 
So whose child is he if there is no obedience to Christ? If all a person has is a false claim. If he is she, if he or she is a liar and no truth in them. The mark of a true believer is obedience to Christ. And it is that mark on you that substantiates your claim. And if the mark isn't on you, it, your, your claim is bogus. Would God bestow this medal on you for service? Would God, in the day of judgment, say, well done, good and faithful servant, servant. Looking for obedience. If we have that obedience, we have the confirmation that we are indwelled by the Spirit of God and belong to him. Father, we thank you for your word. It's biting at times. Cuts to the quick, as we would say. But it's so helpful because it reminds us that saying doesn't make it so. And I am fearful that in America, and it's particularly in the American church, we have a lot of people who are good at the saying part, not so good at the doing part. They have forgotten what Jesus warned. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do such and such and such and such? And I will say to them, depart from me, you that were workers of lawlessness. Saying doesn't make it so. I hope we're more than talkers. Lord, make us more than talk. The world definitely needs a witness. It does need talk. We need to give the gospel, but we have to give it in such a way that when they hear the gospel from our lips, they're saying, this guy, this gal lives this. They really believe this. They live it. And it's that witness that speaks of the power of God. I pray that you'll help us with this. Thank you for your word. I thank you for John. I thank you for this little epistle. And I thank you that he uses the, the four-letter word L-I-A-R. And he uses that again and again in this text to remind us that there's a possibility that we could be self-deceived. The evil one is the liar, and he tries to make us think we're something we're not. He started out lying to Adam and Eve and he's continued to lie ever since and people have gone to hell and continue to go to hell because they believe the lie. Please deliver us from self-deception. If there's someone here that doesn't know Christ as Savior but they say, I know him, I know him. But there's no evidence in their life that they do. I pray that you'll firstly forgive them and convict them of their sin and grant them true faith and true repentance. And where we have been slackers, where we have, even in our Christian faith, have not as been fastidious about obedience as we should be. From this day on, we're asking you to change us. Grant to us a revision of heart.
In Christ's name, amen.